The bike I choose for my daughter's sixth birthday is purple and glittery with butterflies on it. She has outgrown her older bike and it's clearly time for a new one and so I pick out this purple glittery bike and present it to her on her birthday. And she's very, very excited to receive it until we go outside the next day to take a ride and she realizes that it's so much bigger. And this is, you know, makes her afraid. We reassure her that riding it is the same as riding her old one and that this one is actually much better suited to her size because she has grown and she's a big girl now and this is a big person's bike and she doesn't think she can do it. We reassure her and remind her that she already knows how to ride. She is very, very leery, but with wide eyes, she gets on sort of white-knuckling it, and wobbles into a starting position. At first, we guide her, walking beside her with a hand on her back to help her feel our presence and so that she knows she's not alone. And so she rides, nervously, but she rides. Now, a few weeks pass, and another beautiful day dawns, and I suggest a ride. She is as nervous as if she has never ridden the big bike before. I remind her of how big she has gotten and assure her that it will be even easier this time. She moans and she's grumbling and groaning, but all the while I note that she is getting her jacket and making her way out to the bike because she really does want to try again, deep down inside. She really does want to ride. And it's like magic. Even in the few weeks since she last got on the bike, she has grown still more and is even more comfortable now. She rides along bravely turning, that's a big deal, and going down hills. She is beaming brightly. This is the best part. She is so proud, feeling her own growth and maturity. There is no way to learn how to ride a bike other than to do it. Reading the owner's manual will not teach you how to ride a bike. You just have to climb on and try. You will likely fall a few times when you're new at it and it's tempting to give up at that stage. But if you persevere, you will be rewarded by actually learning how to ride a bike. There's a joke told about Unitarian Universalists. Perhaps you have heard it. Outside the pearly gates, there are two signs. One says heaven and points that way, and the other says discussion about heaven. <laughs> you have heard it. And points this way. And the joke is that Unitarian Universalists will choose the discussion of heaven rather than the real thing every time. What is that about, people? <laughs> this joke really does point to something true about us. We like to think about ideas, we like to learn, we like to discuss, and I hear in some congregations, we like to debate. I'm not sure if that's true here. In some of our congregations, there is that spirit. But the point of the religious life is not to learn about being kind, it is to be kind. 
The point of the religious life is not to intellectually consider theories of love. It is to be loving. The point of the religious life is not to read about being generous. It is to be generous. But like riding a bicycle, we cannot read a manual and get it. We don't learn to be generous by learning about it in theory. We learn how to be generous by doing it in practice. The only way to get it is to do it, to be generous. How is it that we who have so much can act as if we have so little when it comes to giving? We live in a culture, of course, which tells us that we can never have enough. We can never keep enough. But the goal of the religious life, as all of the sages have told us throughout history, is to experience an unclenching of the fist, an unlocking of the heart, an opening of the hand to share. It is the reason we are here. There are many ways to practice the art of generosity, and not all of them have to do with money. Be generous with your attention. If you are busy making dinner and your child or your partner is trying to talk with you, pause from the cooking and listen for three minutes as if they are the most important person in the world. Or when you are standing in an airport waiting for a bus, or walking down the sidewalk, sliding on the ice down the sidewalk. <laughs> Put your phone away and look around you. Make contact with the real live beings all around you. Notice nature, which is ever present. Feel your breath that sanctuary available to you in every moment. Give the gift of your presence, your attention. Be generous with your spirit. When the temptation arises to be angry or stay angry with a coworker or a friend or a family member, experiment with just stepping out of the emotional stream. Cultivate a sense of compassion for them and for yourself. You are both sacred beings, sometimes wounded, but always precious. Give the gift of the softening of your own heart. And yes, give the gift of your money. I invite you to do something uncharacteristically generous this week. The point of this experiment is to do much more than you would ordinarily. And there are lots of ways you might choose to do it. If you go out for lunch after church on the way home, leave an extra generous tip. See how it feels. Or if you happen to be going to work tomorrow and happen to go out for lunch with a coworker, buy your coworker's lunch. When the offering plate comes by later in the service, put in a bill so large that you feel reckless. I promise that feeling will shift to a different feeling and it won't kill you. 
I'm promising you. Pay for the person behind you in line at the coffee shop and leave without them knowing you did so. The point of this, again, is to give with a level of uncharacteristic abundance to see how it feels for you. Find your own creative ways to practice the art of generosity. These are practices which will nourish your spirit. The poet Maya Angelou says, I have found that among its other benefits, giving liberates the soul of the giver. My colleague Reverend Scott Prinster points out that the same principles that create financial abundance and stewardship also nurture spiritual abundance and stewardship. In northeastern India, we have a huge number of Unitarian churches. In this very humble setting, they have found a way to support the church financially that is quite inspiring. Before cooking each and every meal, a handful of rice is scooped out of the large bag, large bag and set aside before every single meal. At the end of each month, a representative from the Unitarian Women's Group visits each Unitarian home and collects the gathered rice, which is then sold. 75% of the money collected from the rice goes to support the local church, and 25% to support the national Unitarian body, the equivalent of the Unitarian Universalist Association. 25%. I'm just saying, that's a lot more than we ask. It's a lot more. If each household had been asked for money, they would have struggled. Yet we all have something to give. Carly Lingdo, the former General Secretary of the Unitarian Union of Northeast India, says, even the poorest families feel proud that they can offer something of their daily food to the works of God. The villagers in northeastern India surely don't have much disposable income. They have far, far less than we do. Of that, I am sure. And yet, even in the most humble of circumstances, they take a scoop of rice out first before feeding their own family to support the faith movement that has enriched their lives. Even the poorest families feel proud that they can offer something of their daily food to the works of God. Can you even imagine giving this generously? I know I am still sitting with that story, and I realize in the sharing of it with other congregations and colleagues, I had to recognize that I have never felt my heart so opened that I have given from the core of my being and not just from the cream on top. And I am the poorer for it. I think we have a lot to learn from our friends and their level of generosity practiced in Northeast India. Which brings me to an aside. Did you know that, statistically speaking, Unitarian Universalists are the second highest earning religious 
group. Just statistically now, I want to say every congregation feels it's not true there, so I know what you're thinking, but statistically, second highest earning religious group. And do you know where we might be compared to other religious folks in terms of our giving to support our own faith? Does anyone have a guess? People are like, you know, absolutely dead last. Absolutely last. I need you to know that information so that we can change it. We must do better. When I served as parish minister in San Mateo, California, I had a partner church in the Philippines, our congregation did, and I was fortunate enough to be able to go there to visit. You can't imagine a more rural setting. In the village, there is no running water, or there wasn't, until we helped them to bring um, a water area to the village. There's no electricity, there's no passable road. There are no diapers for babies. I also visited the Unitarian Universalist congregation that meets in the slum area of Manila. The setting there is anything but rural, but the poverty is just as extreme. When I met with both of these groups to worship, we sang Spirit of Life, listened to prayers and a sermon, and when the time came for the offering to be taken, every person present put money into the plate. Every person. I wondered what they were doing without in order to support the church. And I realized how much it meant to them to be able to give. They gave joyfully and proudly. Giving is a part of the way they express their faithfulness, open-heartedly enriching the spiritual community that nourishes them. Our Unitarian Universalist friends in the Philippines are great teachers for us. Continuing on our journey around the world, I want to share a story from the UU group in Kenya, Africa, told to me by my colleague David Usher, who was sent there by the International Council of Unitarians and Universalists. When a group somewhere in the world discovers Unitarian Universalism, as they're doing so frequently now with access to the internet, and they go into our tradition enough to want to actually affiliate and call themselves Unitarian Universalist, the ICUU, this group, sends someone to meet with them to help them with leadership development, to get to know them, and generally just to help them learn more what it means to be a UU. So in Kenya, these folks had discovered our faith within the last four or five years. They are all, the members of the congregation, all are uh, nearly all unemployed, or barely scraping by. And they are so excited about Unitarian Universalism that they are free to believe what they believe and not be told what they must believe, that they can be fully who they are. It's life-affirming and life-giving, life-saving for them. They want everyone in Africa to know about this faith that they have found. And, as another aside, if 
Unitarian Universalism continues to grow there at the rate that it is now, it will eclipse Unitarian Universalism's size in this country within the next decade. Isn't that awesome? Um, so they're doing the best they can to share the message of Unitarian Universalism. It is core to their identity as Unitarian Universalists, as it is here in your congregation, to do for others. They run schools, orphanages, cottage industries of all kinds, micro-lending groups, and again, nearly all of them are unemployed or just barely scraping by. These justice efforts are not in addition to whatever else they do. It's their core. It's core to their identity. So Reverend Usher confessed to me that he felt embarrassed when they asked him how many members he had in his local church, how many social justice projects they run, what they're doing for the community, and how much money they gave. And that's not because his congregation wasn't doing anything, but they were much larger than the group in Kenya, and their tangible service to the world didn't hold a candle to what the Kenyan Unitarians were experiencing. He came home from that trip realizing that while the ICUU had sent him there to help the Kenyans learn more about what it meant to be Unitarian Universalist, he came home with the feeling that they had been teaching him. And I love those stories where our expectations are turned on their heads. Our friends in Kenya can be great teachers for us. David Bumba is professor of ministry at Meadville Lombard Theological School, and he writes about the invitation that Martin Luther King Jr. had sent out to clergy, asking them to come to Selma, Alabama to help with voting rights. I did not for a moment believe that he meant me, Bumba writes. It never occurred to me that an invitation to the clergy to come to Selma meant me too. I did not go. Then came the terrible news that James Reeb, one of our Unitarian Universalist ministers who did respond to that call, had been clubbed to death in the streets of Selma. Another call went out, this time from the Unitarian Universalist Association, urging as many ministers as possible to go to Alabama for the last stages of the march from Selma to Montgomery. I read the call, but once more, it never occurred to me that I was included. The next Sunday, as I was about to enter the sanctuary, two members of my congregation stopped me and asked if I was going to Alabama. I must have looked very confused. I explained that we had a small child and another on the way, and I really did not have money to spend on a plane ticket, and they interrupted my ramblings to say, we have the plane ticket. Will you use it? And suddenly I knew that all the sermons I had ever preached and all the sermons I would ever preach would be hollow and empty unless I walked through the door that they had just opened for me. And so I went to Alabama. David Bamba took a risk because he was challenged to a door was opened for him, and he went through it. 
your congregation has made a great and real commitment to racial justice work. And I affirm you for doing that hard work, for walking through that door and accepting that risk and that challenge. The poet Mary Oliver writes, I wanted to thank the Mockingbird for the vigor of his song. Every day he sang from the rim of the field while I picked blueberries or just idled in the sun. Every day he came fluttering by to show me, and why not, the white blossoms in his wings. So one day I went there with a machine and played some songs of Mahler. The mockingbird stopped singing. He came close and seemed to listen. Now, when I go down to the field, a little mahler spills through the sputter of his song. How happy I am, lounging in the light, listening as the music floats by. And I give thanks also for my mind, that thought of giving a gift. And mostly, I'm grateful that I take this world so seriously. It's not a coincidence that I'm involved in stewardship ministry and have also done a lot of international work, meeting fellow UUs from around the world, from Transylvania in Eastern Europe and the Kazi Hills of India and England and Germany and Africa and from the Philippines. Meeting these fellow UUs has taught me firsthand just how much we have to give. And so I've been inspired to experiment with greater generosity in my own life, to preach and teach about stewardship in this context, which is in a culture that tells us over and over again that we don't have enough, we can never have enough, we can't possibly have enough, and yet finds us easily adopting the latest technology, traveling regularly, purchasing many things without a second thought, barely registering the level of abundance continually raining down upon us. The wisdom traditions throughout time have taught us that being generous, truly, madly, riskily generous, that's a fundamental aspect of nourishing the spirit. Giving liberates the soul of the giver. And so, I invite you to try it. I am not inviting you to talk about it, or read about it, or even to do a lot of thinking about it. I'm inviting you to be generous. And like the call to Selma that David Bumbaugh didn't think was for him, let me be very clear. I am talking to you, and I am also talking to me I'm talking to us. The thing is, you have already done it. You have shown your generous hearts time and time again. Most recently, when First Universalists set a goal of raising $60,000 for the home that Love built to build a house with Habitat for Humanity, you raised 115000 It's an incredible story. The generosity is there. 
for the sake of people we have never seen and will never meet and can only imagine, we must strengthen Unitarian Universalism to help heal this hurting world. We must do this. The stakes are very high. And we are the only ones who can possibly turn the poor, poor record of giving around within our own tradition. We're the only ones that can do that. The time for that is now, this day, today. The church will benefit from your experiments with radical generosity right now. And your spiritual life will grow and blossom as you do so. Just as the poet who played Mahler for the Mockingbird gives thanks also for her mind, that thought of giving a gift. But most of all is grateful that she takes this world so seriously. A door is being opened for us to go through, and I promise that it is the way into a different and more fulfilling way of life. No matter your circumstances, it is possible to scoop out a handful of rice. Just try it and see how you begin to experience the world and your own life differently. Jump up on that bike and ride. Amen. <laughs>